Well, first I you know, became aware of the climate change issue and I I've sort of felt we all need to get involved in solving that problem. And for me, I was from a policy background and a policy academic background. And I really didn't feel like policy was gonna make the kind of fast change that I was excited about. So I had to find an entrepreneurial pursuit that was connected to climate change. And I actually started to explore three different topics, water and technology, new urban design, urban planning, and urban agriculture. And I created three blogs and one of those blogs was called Agritecture. And I was trying to test out what do I like and what does the audience like? And Agritecture clearly stood out as winning on both of those categories. And it just connected with my passion for cities, uh, for the future of cities, and this bringing in of, you know, what I call the nexus of, you know, food, water, energy, and waste in the urban environment. So for me, it's about so much more than growing food. It's about a transformation of society to a more sustainable way of living and a way of planning our cities. Yeah. What do you think it was about that particular topic that won out over the others? Why do people hook onto that? I think that there is this uh, philosophical aspect of it, which is, um, you know, goes back to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and our interest as humans to engineer our way out of problems. And the idea of vertical farming, urban agriculture, especially tech-enabled urban agriculture, really captures that feeling of hope that we can build our way through the problems that we're facing and be more resilient for the future. You know, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, his wife was from a green area and he and Babylon was in the desert and she missed this green area. So he engineered this, you know, hydroponic tower um, that was full of gardens that greened this space and was this wonder of the world. And I think that that's a similar idea to what Dr. Dixon de Pommier embodied in his The Vertical Farm book. And what still many, many entrepreneurs, if you talk to them and their origin stories, uh, it's my kid started asking me, what are you going to do to change the world? Or I saw one of these farms online and it just like clicked with me. This is the future. A lot of the origin stories in this sector are similar to that. Even Bright Farms, if you look at their early days, they were integrating greenhouses into buildings and, and creating resource flows between them. So it's, it's really about, you know, humanity's uh, technological advancement, as well as our interest in, in sort of saving us. I think that's the philosophical perspective. But I think there's just another perspective, which is food and agriculture connect us all. It's something we all have in common. So it's, it's really like such an exciting topic to bring us together and to solve problems on because the impact is so enormous and ubiquitous across society. I imagine when you're sharing these, your, your point of view, um, there's a lot of people who agree with you and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I would imagine on occasion you run into somebody who wants to debate you on this topic and maybe they're fans of globalization and they, they feel like things can be done better far off and shipped in. What, what are those conversations look like, uh, when you're, when you're debating those topics? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first things I say is like urban agriculture, isn't something new, uh, whenever we built cities, we always built cities near the resources we needed to survive, including food. In fact, so many of our locations for our cities are based on that. It's only as the Green Revolution happened, which certainly had many, many benefits, that we disconnected food supply from our urban areas. And as I said, there were benefits, including feeding millions and billions of more people as a result of that. But the downsides of that are that we've become disconnected from our food system. And it's important that we as a society have a certain percentage of people that live in the places where we work and live and eat that understand agriculture and can at least appreciate that system. 
what's happened since the baby boomers, especially, is we've basically dramatically removed that connection to nature and that connection to agriculture. There are consequences that we're already facing for that removal related to human health, related to our ability to be resilient. And it just takes a quick look to the past to understand the risks we have now created with disconnecting agriculture from urban areas. So if we look at World War I and World War II, the Victory Gardens were enormous responses to supply chain threats. And actually in World War II, 40% of the vegetables were grown in Victory Gardens, 40%. So if that for me is one example, but we can also look at more recent examples like the blockade of Cuba, where they had to respond and develop their own urban farms, and they were able to become food secure as a result of urban agriculture and organic agriculture. Or we can look at COVID if we want to look a little bit closer to where we are now. Across the world, urban farms, community gardens have been responding to the lack of food security and threats to the supply chain. And now we can look at the war in Ukraine. The question is, when people ask me this, the question is, are we prepared? for the challenges of the future? Do we have the skills necessary to grow our own food, to find seeds, to harvest, to cultivate, to distribute? Have we lost that skill already? Do we need to invest aggressively back in it? I think so. I think that it's important that we invest in resilience and restore urban agriculture across the globe. Do you think there's an appreciation, is there a side benefit uh, to just being closer to the food source and maybe being able to visualize and see where the food is coming from. Do you think there's a benefit to that? I think there's many benefits to being close to any kind of nature, including agriculture. I think that when it comes to agriculture itself, you can appreciate the work that goes into the product and you can appreciate the challenges that agriculture faces, all kinds of challenges, whether it's indoor, outdoor, tech-enabled or not, pests, contamination, labor, supply chain issues, uh, changes in market conditions. These all affect many industries, but if you see it in person with agriculture, you understand and you're humbled by what it takes to produce the food that you eat on a daily basis and that we will, so many of us take for granted. But I think in addition to understanding and appreciating and respecting farmers by being closer to that, you can also get inspired to invent and to solve the problems that you're witnessing. And that inspiration can lead to much more than the food that you produce, but actually it can look at you exploring water, energy, and waste connected in one system. And that system, that synergy between those things, that nexus is critical for us to understand as a human society to be able to adapt and to, under, and to develop more sustainably. The third reason why it's important is because of biophilia. There's plenty of evidence that being around nature calms us, helps us heal faster, helps us generally feel better about life and improve our mood. And these are things that have become evident and many cities are investing in, even separate from urban agriculture, to green the space and to make it a more nature-like place. Let's not forget that we are animals. We grew up in nature, we still exist on a planet with other animals, and just because we've built concrete jungles doesn't mean we're not originally from actual jungles. Yeah. Uh, my daughter uh, is in high school and we did a little experiment this summer where we're growing tomatoes and jalapenos and stuff like that, and we did okay. It, it, we did okay, but I... I could see her appreciation next time we're in a grocery store or farmer's market because it wasn't just like, oh yeah, that's there. It's like, how did they do this? You know, 
And look, I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up in Hong Kong until I was six and then moved to Tokyo and I lived in Tokyo until I was 10. I, I grew up in major metro metropolises. I didn't grow up with a green thumb. My parents are gardeners, but we didn't have gardens when I was younger growing up. But what I did notice was that when I went to the park in Hong Kong and I saw the way that they creatively integrated the green spaces into buildings and very dense areas, it inspired me. It was a place that I wanted to be. It was a place that I liked. I enjoyed that. It brought me joy as a kid. And, and I think there's really interesting ways to bring that into cities and to not make it just, again, green spaces, but productive urban landscapes through agriculture that's urban. So, you know, I think it's something that, you know, that was a really big inspiration to me as a kid. And I was always designing things as a kid. And I would find interesting ways to bring gardens into spaces. I, I was really inspired by various design styles from the world, the sort of interior gardens and in Sevilla, Spain, and various places that I got to see and had the privilege to go. So I think it's it's not that difficult to understand why this is so good for us. Yep. So it it seems to me that if you get a chance to share this story, this point of view, a lot of people are going to be nodding their heads and saying yes, but there's, a, there's still a lot of obstacles involved in pulling this off if they want to start an initiative. What are some of those obstacles that you're constantly trying to advise people on how to overcome uh, whenever they say, hey, look, we're, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to start this initiative. What are some of those common things? Well, first of all, for me, I also was naive about urban agriculture as my passion turned into a profession. And some of the things that helped humble me and bring me down to earth was working in farms and understanding the realities and difficulties of that but also my academic studies at Columbia University, my professor, Sarah Chosum, that showed me in the history of agriculture, there's always technologies and flashy things that are shown to save us and to be better, but there's always a trade-off in those. So as a result, in my practice and in my thought leadership that I engage in, I always try to proceed with caution and encourage an honest discussion about the trade-offs that exist between greenhouses, vertical farms, automation, not automation, organic, agroforestry, all of them. There is no silver bullet in agriculture, and we don't encourage that in agritecture. In fact, our name itself is about embracing the design thinking process and behaving like architects would to run scenarios for agriculture, as opposed to the typical journey of sort of saying, this worked there, let's do it here. Okay. And, and so that is very critical. Now, how do we do that? And how do I encourage that? Well, the first thing is you know, collaboration. It begins by talking about this with each other and sharing ideas and finding middle ground between these different methods of production. Another way is data sharing, which is obviously connected to that, but starting to encourage more open data reports that we produce, like our census that we've produced, reports and data like our software that allows you to understand these costs and run scenarios related to them, the data that we share at events and through conversations like this about the past or how this tech works. That's another way that we really do it. And then also, finally, we really try to avoid greenwashing and hype related to the sector. So we've produced marketing communications guidelines for our industry for free to help marketers and advertisers not greenwash in this sector that we believe in so strongly. Uh, so these are all ways to sort of taper the naivety that I alluded to earlier in the conversation about sort of the source of where this uh, quote unquote, uh, savior complex through agriculture comes from, right? And so, yeah, we have to be honest about that. And, and sustainability, which is the objective here, right, is sustainability and resilience. But sustainability is not an A to Z process, okay? <laughs> sustainability is a circular process. You look at what the problem is, you 
estimate and think about what a possible solution is. You track the data on how that solution is achieved, and then you start over again and you continually improve. So when people are labeling themselves as sustainable, to me, that's just totally missing the point because it's an ongoing journey towards sustainability. It's a part of sustainability. It's a culture of sustainability. It's not sustainability itself or a grade or a trophy that you've achieved. And, and I think that, that changing that mindset is one of the key ways to do this. And so I embrace the naysayers. If we look at the content that we've produced, including the article on the trough of disillusionment for vertical farming, which is the most hyped up type of agriculture these days, you know, it's very blunt about the fact that we need to be more honest about the fact about the, the, the challenges to the economics of this and the challenges to the environmental impact of this. It is not necessarily better than field agriculture. We need to dispel that lie. We need to embrace that complexity and start to design solutions to that because we also have a responsibility to the next generation, not to mention our employees and our investors and the people we feed, but to the next generation. We have to set an example to them about how we collaborate, how we talk about sustainability, how we share data. And that begins with us being honest. Yeah. Why do you think that hype machine gets out of control sometimes? Is it because we're so hungry for a solution and one appears to be one that we just go all in on it? I mean, my, my point of view on a lot of the greenwashing and communications and marketing is that it's mostly, it's not, I think from afar, it almost seems like ill intent. You're like, oh, they're trying to pull one over on us. I think it all, I think most of the time, most of the time, it's positive intent that comes from being misinformed and, and people are naive and they have pressure on them to to be that. So they say that, but they haven't walked that walk yet. They're just, they're just saying the talk that they want to have, but it's not from a bad place. Right. So the, I feel I like this education materials. I, I, yeah. I think so, the education is so critical to make sure you understand, like, are we, are we, are we speaking to what the reality is today and, and, and not trying to overpromise or, or uh, at that point? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's malicious. I really, I really don't. I mean, I think that there are certain actors that greenwash sure. in very intentional ways. But in, in our sector, which is relatively small, um, I, I think it's often just marketing teams that are not connected to the science of the company. Like they don't really talk to the farmers. Farmers are not typically greenwashers, right? They're the most honest people. They're very conservative what they say. So I actually associate most of it to the Silicon Valley um, you know, mindset that has had certain benefits, obviously, but also a lot of cons. And we can see that with FTX, we can see that with Theranos, we can see how the journalists lift companies up and exaggerate their benefits, how investors flood in as a result of FOMO. And the trough of disillusionment as part of the Gartner hype cycle is not something that's exclusive to vertical farming and, and urban agriculture. So we, we don't need to like beat ourselves up about it. I mean, I call people out on greenwashing because you're still greenwashing, even if you're being just naive and not malicious about it. And you can make up for that very easily. But I don't think it comes from a, a bad place. I think people are hopeful. They're optimistic. They want to imagine this, this future that's a bit utopian and they want to push the boundaries of that. And they also want to raise a lot of money. And it doesn't you don't raise a lot of money by being honest. Yeah. One of the things our team talks about to try to stay in a in an honest space is how much of our time in our messaging are we talking about sustainability or green whatevers versus the actual realities of the product? Like how much is being invested into the product itself? I, I mean, that, that ratio cannot get so out of whack. Yeah. 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 I think it's, I think that's absolutely accurate. Like, is it action or is it just words? And, and I think that's, um, yeah, that's difficult. Yeah.
it's not easy, but I think it, it starts with uh, education. It starts with creating sort of uh, guardrails, if you will, on, you know, what can we values? I yeah. think it's values and leadership. Like the leaders of these companies are responsible for the cultures of the companies. And, and that goes from the top down through the company. And I think that the values and the integrity of these leaders varies as it relates to their willingness to exaggerate and play the Silicon Valley game of hype. Yep. So let's talk about agritecture for just for a second. From the outside looking in, it <laughs> appears to me, and tell me if I'm wrong or not, it appears to me that you really started with a uh, sort of a missional mindset. You had your why and the how has evolved over time in order to get to that why. I mean, it, it appears to me that it's like starting with content, then it starts with advisory, now you're developing tools. Like it feels like that evolution is, you're just following this purpose wherever you can go. Is that a fair statement or how would you how would you frame that up? Yeah, again, I don't, I, some, some seed was planted in me from these experiences and I've just decided to dedicate my life to, you know, encouraging urban agriculture of all kinds around the world. And, you know, the best place for me to start with that was sharing what I was learning on a blog. And that's what I did, you know, in 2011, 2010. And that's where it started for me. And it was an authentic pursuit of my passion. I, I never imagined that we would be where we are now. It was not part of the plan. Um, my objective was to share and inspire others. And the greatest successes I had in those early days were that people found companies that they worked for, like Bright Farms, when I reported on them. In the early days, I discovered companies that were just getting started, and I gave them attention before the Wired magazines or the Financial Times was talking about this. So, so you know, that's where the authenticity of agritecture's sort of in, encouraging. You know, in the early days, I used to say with my team, like, we're not building a business; we're building an industry. You know, and like that was the approach was like collaborate, share, lift others up, you know, lead and, and everything else will sort of come together uh, as, as our mission to sort of accelerate this transition that, that, that we believe is important in the face of the climate crisis. So that was like the early days. But then obviously, as, as anybody who works in um, sort of or starts with something related to marketing and exactly the reason why I started three blogs at the beginning was because. For me, and I think many, many people understand this, social media marketing is not about just telling a story and telling your audience. It's also about learning from your audience. What do they like? What do they engage in? What do they care about? What matters to them? And I think that people don't understand as often that, that market, marketing is market research. And so you, you learn from the content you put out there. And so we learned a lot from that blogging period. I learned a lot about what the typical journeys of these companies are, their investment challenges, how they how they design their farms, what crops they grow. And I started building this archive as I was blogging about all this information. And that archive became the foundation for our ability to conduct feasibility studies and plan these new farms. And then those fe feasibility studies became a foundation for our ability to do due diligence on new farms that investors wanted. And then that understanding became a foundation for our policy work and how we encourage incentives and engage youth and help cities understand this. And all of that became valuable information that made us attractive for corporates like IKEA to hire us for their global strategy for urban agriculture. So it's about organic growth and responding to the market and following that. And finally, our software, which is the next frontier of agritecture, is scaling up the methodologies that we've been executing for 10 years, the data that we've gathered, the community we've built, and making the process of planning farms of the future 
10 times faster and 10 times cheaper solving some of these key problems because we have to get more smart farms that are resilient to climate change, planned, built, and profitable. So I'm sure that's that's a great rundown of, uh, you, you shortchanged a bunch of years and I'm sure a lot of hard effort. What has yeah. been oh, the most- Trust me, it's yeah. been a roller coaster, yeah. Yeah, what's been the most rewarding part of that though? I mean, I love the team, you know, like the, 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 the team that we have is, is what I love. I love them. I love our culture. I love the projects that we work on together and the feeling like we solve these problems for entrepreneurs or nonprofits or governments. And I love that my team is young, like we're mostly millennials, you know? And so I love that we are pushing ourselves to do things that are beyond our comfort zone to work with clients that I think especially in the early days, were just crazy that we were working with as a young company. And I think that's really representative of our generation, um, that anything's possible, that we want flexible work-life experience. Um, you know, and I think that is what I love about it. I mean, these are people that I've worked with for years. Uh, you know, some of them have been with me since the beginning, you know, and, and we've been through so much together. So that's the most important part to me. Also like my, and the most rewarding part of it for me is that there's other things like seeing the farms built. There's other things like seeing um, people talk about our work when we, we haven't requested them or even engaged with them. Or I love meeting people at events where they say, I've been following your blog for years. You know, look on my phone. I've saved it as a, as a bookmark, or like an app on my phone. I've followed for years. It's, it's, it's something I read every day. It's giving me so much knowledge and insight or people saying, I found the company I work for now on your blog. That kind of stuff is very rewarding for me and my, my overall mission, because it's it's really about pollinating this knowledge and connecting people. And again, that mission of building the industry and accelerating that transition. So that's the part I, I love about it. Um, it's exciting.